grandchildren <laughs> are a distraction. Let's see here. See, I, do, I have to do this every morning, every Sunday. There we go. So Neil asks my forgiveness for taking time. I don't mind that. <clears throat> Having lived 20 years in the South Pacific, approximately, and Neil being in the Caribbean, we're not used to time. <laughs> but uh, I'm doing my best to adjust to the American culture and be uh, a little more careful of our, of our time. But, but when, he's, when he speaks like that and says some things, it really stirs up your thinking. And one of the things I was, and he, he touched on it, and I think I touch on it every Sunday, is how. How do we change our thinking? How do we stop thinking like slaves? Because we all think like slaves. Why, how do we stop that? How do we change our thinking? And the book of Ephesians is full of how we do this. And the simple answer that I'm going to give you today, which I think is the fundamental basis of the communion that he touched on, and the fundamental basis of the Bible, is the title of this lesson, Eyes on God. We're, we're looking at this word gratitude. It's going to be tied up in this lesson. This is not a lesson with a title, gratitude, but gratitude is tied into this. We don't change our thinking by listing all the things we're thankful for. It's a technique that's good. I'm, I encourage you to do that. Write down all the things you're thankful for. But you will continue to think like a slave until your eyes are on God. That's what changes your thinking. It's not looking at your blessings, which we're going to look at in a moment, but it's looking at the source of your blessings. And I'm not saying that to give you, to, to uh, have some kind of a technique uh, or, you know, a, a speaker's, you know, cute words of following the source of your blessing instead of the blessing or, or whatever. I'm not that cute anyway. But it's true. If that's not your focus, you're going to miss the point and you're going to miss the life that God has given you to live. Ephesians chapter 1. You can turn there. We're only going to look at one verse. In April of this past year, 2018, I sat in the marketplace, the main agora, Tetrachonus Gora, the governor's agora, in the ruins of Ephesus, and I opened up the book of Ephesians, and I read through it very slowly and very thoughtfully. I had entered in the top part of the city through the magnesium gates and walked down the Curettes Avenue. As I walked down those streets, it, it, one of the reasons I went there uh, came to, to my thoughts and feelings that, that my feet are on the pavements that Paul walked on. John walked on these stones. The, this stone that I'm standing on, Apollos may have put his foot here. Priscilla walked on this road. Aquila 
Timothy, other Christians, as I walked down that street to the library of Celsus, which was built around the time that they were all there. There's two huge gates, beautiful big gates, and you walk through these gates after you go to, to the library, and you look out in this open field, huge field, and you can see some columns still, still standing, and that's, that's where this agora is. This is the, the shopping area. This is where, as I walk through here, I thought about all the brothers and sisters buying and selling here. This is where they bought their groceries. This is where they bought their household articles. And in the middle was a tree that's kind of isolated from, from the area, and nobody was there. And I said, that's where I sat, and I read this, this letter. And there's some evidence, as, as you read this letter, there's some evidence that it wasn't written to the Ephesians only, but it was written as a circular letter. It was written to, there's a space left to the, to the saints at, and there's a space left there. And if they went to Laodicea, they wrote in Laodicea. If they went to, and there's thought about that and debate about that. But whether or not it was a circular letter, it was definitely read and copied and sent off to Laodicea and Colossae and Smyrna and the little cities, the little areas around. Because the value of this letter, as you read it, it'll it will change your life. If you read it the way you're supposed to read it, not hurriedly but thoughtfully, it will change your life. Some people have said that, that they are reading the letter, my parents including, my parents and my sister. And last week I believe I mentioned that it takes about 30 minutes. Well, my mother timed it. They read it out loud, 21 minutes, out loud. So I'm saying 15 minutes if you're reading to yourself. That's all the time that it takes. And, then, and, and I'd like to encourage you to invest 15 to 20 to 30 it takes 28 minutes if you have some discussion and let the dogs out to the bathroom outside and come back in. That's her second timing. So you can talk about it and let the dogs out and let the dogs back in and still 28 minutes later, that's all it takes. And last week we saw how this is a God-centered and a Christ-focused book. That, this book is Christ-centered. It is God-focused. And that's where I'm bringing you on this. And that this letter which is God-focused, Christ-centered, is showing us who we are and how we are to live. That may be in that next slide. Let's, let's see if it is. Is that what I put up there next time? Yeah, God, click it one more time. Because I want you to think about that. It shows us who we are. It shows us how we are to live as we go on in the book. Not right now. We're looking at the God-centered and Christ-focused, but it's going to show us that. And in the description, as he begins in the first two verses, he sums up the entire book in two verses. In the first two verses, we're going, we saw that there was two descriptions and two results. The descriptions of Christians are saints and faithful or expressing faith, those who are expressing faith. And because of that, they live in grace and in peace. And so I want to remind you and ask you, if you as a Christian do not find yourself enjoying grace and peace, if you are unaware of it in your daily life, as you go throughout your life, your problem is you don't remember who you are in Christ. That's your problem. 
If you're struggling with peace, if you're struggling with grace, if that's not a part of your life, I'm calling you to refocus your life on Christ. If you don't understand your position as a saint, your life of putting this faith into practice, you have to begin by understanding, number one, who God is, and then secondly, what he's done for you. But who he is is more important than even what he's done for you. When you rediscover and you're re-reminded of the work of God in your life, you will be filled with that word that we're looking at today, gratitude. Gratitude will come automatically. You're not going to have to generate it. It will come automatically. When you look at God and base your life on the work of God, if you're not grateful, if you're not filled with awe at God's mighty work, then there's a lack of understanding in your mind. And so Paul later on says in this chapter, actually, he says, you know, I'm praying that your eyes will be opened. I'm praying that your eyes will be opened so you'll see what you possess in Christ. And that's my prayer also as we go through this letter, that if your eyes are dull, dimmed, distracted, if your eyes are not on God, that the eyes of your hearts will be opened. When I find a Christian who's living like the world, when I find a Christian who is seeking fulfillment and meaning and identity in his work or pleasure, I see a Christian who has lost sight on God. He's lost sight on the blessing that he has in Christ. And so I pray this study on Ephesians this year will reawaken refresh in your minds who you are in Christ. It will change the way you're thinking from that slave mentality, as Neil was saying, to who you truly are in Christ, who he made you to be, and and will revitalize our walk with him. And so we look at this first 14 verses, and I do have the ability to cover verses 3 through 14 in one lesson. I've done it before. But it's, it's flying through it so quickly that you're going to, it's so, you miss so much that we're not going to do it. It, it. But it's Paul standing back and he's giving us this panoramic view of the entire plan of God, God's great plan. And he gives us that scope in just a few words in, the, in these uh, verses through verse 14. And then in the rest of that chapter, and in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he really fleshes it out. He even brings it out more. So the first three chapters of Ephesians is bringing us and, and lifting up before us God's great plan for us in our life. But here in these verses, he's just kind of, he's given a quick overview before he gets into more detail. This is God's great plan laid out for us. And once we see this and once we ponder on it, once we think about it, You cannot help but stand in awe and wonder at the magnificence of God and his work in our lives. Reading just verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the most amazing thing about that little verse, is every, almost every word has weight. Almost every word has value. Almost every word, and I'm saying almost because maybe the doesn't, but the does even. 
These words are weighty. These words are meaningful. And it's good for us to look at them. Praise. Praise be to God. Paul did not say it like I, I don't think he said it like I even said it. I think he was excited. Paul is dictating this, probably. This is how they normally did. He was dictating this. And I think what he said in the first two verses were meaningful to him, but then he stopped and he, and he, and he just goes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's excited about something. He's filled with wonder. He has joy. There's a sense of a, a joy and excitement in his life. I call this a hallelujah phrase because they're all through the first three chapters, what I call hallelujah phrases, where he's just calling out praise to God. And this word is found all throughout the, the, this word praise that we, we translate into praise. It's found all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. We see it over and over and over. And you know at least one Greek, uh, Hebrew word. You might not know that you know it, but you know it. Hallelujah. Some of you have said hallelujah. Do you know what you're talking about? That is a Hebrew word that is translated praise. I have it up here, Hebrew word of the week, halal, praise. That's what it looks like in Hebrew. And another word that is often used is one that we looked at in December when we were looking at the ironic blessing where the Lord bless you. That word is barak. And that's what it looks like, too, if you have any desire to look at it. But the meaning means to kneel, to bless, to salute, to greet, to endue with power for success, to praise or adore. I mean, there's a lot of meaning in all these words. This, I want, to, I, want to, I want to, you to think about this, though. The word praise, we so connect it abstractly with feelings that we miss the point. The word praise is not getting a spiritual high. It's not an emotion. Now, listen, it can lead to an emotion, and that's a good thing. When Paul was excited and joyful, when he said praise, he had an emotion, but it's based in something solid and something firm. And that's where we have to go first. If we don't go there first, we're going to miss the point. This word halal can be translated boast. It can be translated brag. And it's used in the Bible in, in that way in a negative sense where someone's boasting about themselves. And that's the word halal that's put in there. And interestingly, over in 1 Samuel 21, when David is going, he's the king of, um, of uh, the Philistines. They're going to uh, capture him. He's in, in front of the kings, and it says he feigned madness. You know what that word is? Halal. <laughs> he, was he was going crazy. All right? So this word halal is not some kind of just um, emotional thing that, oh, well, ha well, hallelujah, and we say this, and we have a good feeling. But it's something about boasting and bragging. And this Barak is kneeling down. And, and there's a purpose in that, that kneeling. The Greek word that you have here in praise means to speak well of. That's what the word literally means, to speak well of someone. And so we could say this is saying, Paul begins by saying, say good things about God. Or brag about God. Or you can combine the picture of all these words and you can say, kneel before God and boast of who he is. That's what praise means. 
But that's where we get stuck. Because you can only brag about what you know. You can only brag and boast about something you know. I can brag and I can boast about my grandkids and my kids and some of you. But if I ask you to brag about, and I, I, I was going to name one, but if I named one, I had to name all seven that are here or they'll get their feelings hurt. But if I named one of my grandchildren and said, brag about him, brag about her, you might say, well, I don't know what to say. I don't really know that person. And that's where we get stuck. We cannot brag. We cannot praise God if we don't know him. Our praise is even limited if the only thing we know about God is, well, he saved us. That's a good thing to know. That's a good beginning. But if that's all you know, your praise is limited. The song we sang uh, earlier, uh, Father, we adore you. I love that song. Uh, Jesus, I adore you. We worship and bow before you or something. I don't know all the words. That's a great song, but then as I sang it, I thought, do we know what we're singing? Father, I adore you. Where, where's the focus? Eyes on God. You have to adore. You can only adore something that you know. You can only adore God if you know him, if you know what he's done for you, if you understand who he is. And so Paul brags and praises, and he tells us about God in a beautiful, artistic, emotional way in these first three chapters. And you can sense the emotions pouring out as he contemplates the grandeur of who God is and what he's done. And it's all tied up in the character of God. We have to start with our mind. We can only know God through our mind. We have to start with our thinking. And then from our thinking to this intimate knowing that leads to a feeling. And if we, if we in church, and I want to say churches in the world today. I've seen this in a village in Fiji, have that backwards. They start with a feeling to get you to feel something, and that's where it stops, really. You feel good about your assembly. You feel good about the, what was said and sung and whatever, but there's no substance there because it starts with a feeling and not with who you're talking about. And so that's where, you, that, that's where Paul starts. That's where the Bible starts, and it can lead to wonderful emotional highs. But that's not our focus. The focus is on who God is. And it says, and he blessed us. He blessed us. In the NIV here, you don't see this in, uh, because it's, it, he uses praise be to God, but the word blessed is used three times here. He says, blessed be God. It's a better translation. Who has blessed us with blessings. All right, so he uses it three times. It's a little play on word. He has blessed us with blessings, and thus we bless him. All right, because he has blessed us because we have this connection with him. And God's blessing begins with his words, what he says. And since his words have power, action takes place. When God speaks, things happen. And these aren't empty words. It isn't God just saying good things about us or nice things about us. But these are powerful, life-changing actions that occur into our in our lives if we are receptive to what he's saying. And then he says he has blessed us. And the, we see this in the past tense. It's called the aorist tense 
in the Greek, and it means he has successfully done this. He has completely done this. He has effectively put this into action. It's a done deal when he says he has blessed us. It's not something he's going to do later, but he's doing it. He's already done it. This is your life. He has done it. He has blessed you. So what happens when God blesses us? Number one, there's a change in relationships. Our first relationship that changes is our relationship with God. And in here, this passage, it says, Praise be, the God, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the relationship that changes. He is Father, and He's every good description that Father says. We talked about this a little last week. When you think of Father, if you have a negative background with your father, you're a slave to that thought. Thank you, Neil. You're a slave to that thought. And you have to be freed from that by refocusing, placing your eyes on true father and seeing the father that he is. He is father who is wrapped up in care and protection and giving gifts and providing for your needs and giving comfort and much, much, much more. More than, it's going to take our entire life to study more about Father, to get a glimpse of who He is. And in this section of blessings, He's going to flesh this out some more as we go through it. Uh, but primarily, He is focusing right here on this vertical relationship. He's, he's saying, all of you here, all of you centralites here, I want you to listen. You're, you're, what we're talking about is this, we want your eyes on God today, this vertical relationship, because my Temptation and my first notes to this was then to begin talking about our relationship to each other and kind of get it ahead of myself, get ahead of Paul here. He's saying, No, listen, forget about that right now. I want you to focus on your upward relationship with God. That's where I want you to be right now. This other stuff is going to take care of itself if you focus on God first. Eyes on God. It's so quick, it's so easy to quickly get off track here because. I think we're afraid of God. I think we're really afraid to hunker down and be at one with God. We're going to look at the horizontal relationship later. But the beginning point is from whom the blessings come, not from what the blessing is. We want to, we want to hurry up. Well, what's the blessing? What's the blessing? I want to know what the blessings are. Give me the blessings. And we focus on the blessings instead of the source of the blessings. That's where we have to be, in the source of who the, who's given this to. We have to start with God. We cannot hurry and, and begin to, we can't truly enjoy the blessings until we understand from whom it comes. The most miserable Christians are those who are centered in themselves, what they have or what they want or what they don't have. Those who are living God-centered lives are the most joyous. And I have known sick, sick, physically sick Christians, full of joy. Dying Christians, full of joy. Because they're not focused on the things of life. They're focused on the God who's the source of life. It's not so much we try hard to love or try hard to have peace or try hard to 
all these other qualities we want, but it's this living in Christ. And I know, and I've had some people say, well, what does this mean? I don't, it's hard for me to explain. But living in Christ produces joy, love, peace, etc. It's not so much working for peace. You'll, you'll, you'll end up being frustrated and you'll struggle with life. You'll suffer spiritually if you're trying hard to be to be at peace. It's the difference, I have it this way, the difference between running after the blessing and running after the source of the blessing. So it, we have to run after the source of the blessing. Let me give you this illustration. Maybe it helps. A peaceful home doesn't come by trying hard to be at peace with each other. It's not an agreement to sit down and say, okay, let's be, a, we've been fighting for weeks. Let's be at peace. And the fighting might stop, but that's called a truce. It's not peace. You might be living in a truce, but you're not living in peace. And the truce is, there's not the, the, the fighting's not going on, but you know someone's going to break the truce, right? The peace is going to be broken. How do you have peace at home? It's not by concentrating on the peace, but it's coming by concentrating on the person and the relationship you have with that person and the forgiveness you have to get, extend to that person, and the love, that, the things that you do together you know, to draw close to one another. And then you sit around and go, oh, we're at peace. It's like it just snuck up on you, right? And that's the way it is with God. It's not like, I want to be at peace. I want... It's a relationship with God, and then you look around and go, that's why I'm joyful. That's why I'm at peace. That's why I can love the unlovely. Not because I'm trying hard to love you, but because I'm connected with God. My focus is on God, and it's just, it's, it's automatic. I think it, in, a, in Christ, it's an automatic growing thing that happens. And we have all spiritual blessings, all, nothing lacking. All right, I'm going to put this in fourth gear real quick. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God is not stingy. We have every single blessing in Christ. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to advance in rank. You don't have to become a better Christian. You don't have to do more to get these things. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. When you come into Christ, the moment you come into Christ, that young man who was put on the screen, who was baptized last Sunday, he has all spiritual blessings. And the oldest one in here doesn't have a single one more than he has. When you come into Christ, you have them. You might not be aware. You may not know how to handle it. You may not know what to do with them, but you have all spiritual blessings. And the following verses we're going to see is this panoramic view of all the blessings that we have in Christ that we'll see. All spiritual blessings. All spiritual blessings. What does that mean? It's the intangibles, the things that we cannot touch, we cannot see, but they give life meaning. They give this physical life meaning. Hope. Joy, peace, redemption, forgiveness, holiness, on and on and on. Things you can't grasp, the intangibles. But without those intangibles, the things of life lose their meaning. Money without peace is a burden. A house that is not a haven is a source of strife. Marriage without joy is miserable. You know this. You know you want these things. And, and, the, and the secret that you, don't know, that you may not know is you have them. You're just not putting them into practice. God blesses us with all these spiritual blessings so that we can enjoy the physical things on life. God is, God's concerned about physical things. He wants you to enjoy the physical things in life. But he gives you the spiritual blessings so you can, so you can enjoy the things of life. And he does this in the heavenly realms. And the good thing about this 
is that Paul's going to use this term five times in the book. This is the first time. And so we're going to introduce it here. We'll expand on it as we go through the letter and see this more. This particular word is only used here in Ephesians. As I said, we're going to expand on it. But what it's, what I'm, it's not saying is this. He's not saying you will one day get all spiritual blessings in heaven, way out there somewhere after you die. He's, that's not the heaven that he's talking about here. It's connected to the here and now. We are currently violently, vi vitally connected with it to the point that Paul is going to say in chapter 2, this is where you are presently. You are presently existing in this realm called the heavenlies. It's the unseen world that truly matters now and forever. Paul, in this whole letter, is trying to help Christians see there is a world you don't see. It's called the spiritual world. It's a real world. It's not something in another dimension. It's not beyond our galaxy that when we die, we're going to be taken outside our universe into a place called heaven. That's not what he's talking about. It's a reality right now, a realm that we cannot see, but it's the true reality that we live in. We're presently connected to this physical, finite reality. It's transitory. It's temporary. But Paul is revealing to us, let me tell you what your permanent and your true state is. I want you to wake up. I want you to see that you are in a place called heavenly realms that is real. It's a real reality that when you see it, quotes on the sea, you're going to live your life differently. Your whole life on this physical planet is going to change when you see the heavenly realms that you live in. And so that's why Paul prays, and my prayer for you is that the eyes of your heart will be opened so you can see this. Don't resist it. Don't say, ah, it's a bunch of junk. If you're a Christian, this is a true, and you know it's a true reality, and we're going to examine it. It's the ability to see and to think spiritually. As you go through life, you'll start thinking and seeing things spiritually. We live in a physical world. We use physical things. We enjoy physical pleasures. But all the while not being overtaken by them because we see and we know that we live in a spiritual heavenly reality. We live in the heavenly realms. We have a heavenly passport, a heavenly citizenship. We enjoy spiritual heavenly blessings while we use them in this physical world. It's this tension of I live Yet, not I. Christ, he's living in me. And it's this reality of, a, of Christ living and working in us that we'll look at later. People who know a lot more Greek than I know say that this, this section is one continuous sentence. I don't know how they know that because there were no periods or commas when he first wrote it. But people who know how the language goes, says, it's almost as if Paul just, he's spilling this out and his, his, his scribe is writing it as fast as he can. It's just one continuous sentence, verses 3 through 14, as he pours out who God is and what he's done for us. And we'll rob ourselves of the glory and riches of grace if we fail to understand what the scriptures teach us about God. I do not apologize for pointing you to God. I do not apologize to, 
for pointing you to Christ. And if that's the only thing you get from 14 years of sermons, that's fine. Because that's all you need to really know. The rest will fall into place if you truly have that. But we are a people who tend to be lazy in our thinking. We don't want to dwell on these concepts, these high things. We say, just tell me the practicals. Get into a, a counseling situation. No one wants to deal with the problems, the, 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 the reason, the attitudes. They want to just tell me what to do. Stop. <laughs> we want to get to the practicals. If you want to get to the practicals and get ahead, read chapters 4, 5, and 6. But they will be shallow if you don't study chapters 1, 2, and 3. When the trials come, you're going to be uprooted. You're going to be unstable because you don't have this firm foundation. Your praise will be surface emotions. They can be orchestrated by a great assembly or a great something. But your first trial, the praise will dissipate. If praise only takes place in a church assembly or a when the radio's on with the music or then when the troubles of life come that's going to be useless Paul's motivation as he lived his life as he went through all the terrible things that he went through was to live for God based in who God is and the tremendous grace that was poured upon him. And we are no different than Paul. If you don't have this, if you don't have God at the forefront of your life, you have nothing to brag about. You have nothing to boast about. You can raise your hand and say hallelujah all day long, but you have nothing it's when you're rooted in who God is, what he has done. And I, I'm telling you, all I know is this much of a roomful. I don't know hardly anything about God. But when we know just a little about God and we focus on that and we center our lives on that, our lives will well up in us a gratitude, a thankfulness that will overflow in all our relationships in our daily lives. My call, as you think of upward and you think of the gratitude and you think of all these other great words and concepts that we've put forth, that you'll turn that all on the source of that and not the blessing. Focus on the source. Focus on God. Focus on Christ. And all these things will come to pass. Our elders are going to come up in a moment here. If you need to be received to state anything to them, uh, they will welcome you. They will pray for you. If we can help anyone in a public way, please come as we stand and sing.